Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group. Yeah, so the, the, the Harbour Club is kind of, uh, I, I guess I would describe it almost like an accidental community. So um, I, I, I'm a, like, I'm an entrepreneur, well, I think through breeding, you know, like uh, I'm uh, my, partly nature, partly nurture, but I, I was selling stuff when I was seven years old. I remember packing all the flowers down in my parents' garden and putting them in jam jars and, and selling them outside the front of the, of the house. And uh, um, yeah, so I've, I've kind of always had that uh, uh, in me. But um, I, you know, I started and grew businesses the traditional way. As your listeners will know, entrepreneurship isn't a straight line. It's, it's, it's tough. It's hard. It's not what you expect. It doesn't seem to follow uh, much, uh, much logic. Um, but the persistent ones break through and, and succeed. And, um, uh, and I was lucky enough. I happened to be in an industry in the 1990s that um, uh, had an acquisition element to it. Because I think when... Um, when you're running a business, you normally look through three kind of different uh, lenses. One is uh, how you can manage a team and develop a team to deliver, you know, far more than you can deliver on your own. Because I think you start start off as a solopreneur and then you realize that, you know, leveraging a team, you can achieve so much more. Even if somebody can only do 50% of what you can do, having six of them, you know, kick, kicks ass compared to doing everything yourself. And then, uh, you know, the next one is marketing and marketing is just a constantly changing dynamic with new ways of reaching uh, an audience. And, uh, you know, that, that's a constantly evolving thing you kind of have to be on top of. And then the third one is sales. Like, how do you convert that audience into money? Because, you know, some people are great at creating an audience. They get loads of, you know, social media followers and, and stuff like that. But it's turning that into leads and sales, which, uh, you know, is one of the other sort of... Uh, you know, magic components, I guess, in entrepreneurship. Um, but I was in an industry that um, uh, had, had uh, kind of saturated uh, the mobile phone business, um, and there were thousands and thousands of smaller players. So it got to the point where it was very hard to get customers to switch over to you because people were contracted into, you know, long-term uh, mobile phone contracts, and you had to wait for them to expire before you could win that customer. So the marketing and sales bit got kind of harder and harder and harder as the market became uh, saturated. And so people were buying other people's companies because when you bought a company, you inherited all of those customers. You could just bolt those customers into your company. And so consequently, there was this frenzy of people running around trying to buy each other. And um, and that just opened my eyes to something I'd, I'd never really considered because as an entrepreneur, you know, my, my problems were, you know, do I pay my payroll or my credit card bill? There wasn't really a, <laughs> another option, which was go buy a company. And I didn't have great credit, so I couldn't borrow money from banks to buy a company. And I didn't have cash lying around, so I couldn't do that either. But what I realized is all the people that were coming to see me to buy my company seemed like they didn't have any money either. Um, you know, they were positioning deals with me that solved problems and created collective value, but didn't actually involve them having ever a big bunch of cash to me. And so I kind of took the view that, hey, look, I don't have any money either. Uh, maybe I should be on the other side of this table. You know, maybe it should be me out there looking for a deal now. You know, I was young in my 20s and, and not particularly savvy when it came to M&A and couldn't afford, you know, lawyers and accountants and corporate finance companies and this kind of stuff. So I, I really had to just go around and meet business owners in the same sector I was in, discuss their challenges and try and position a deal with them that would be mutually beneficial to us, but, you know, preserve my cash so I wouldn't be putting cash into it. I was able to pull one of those deals off and I grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon without any 
marketing expense. And for me, it was just a penny that dropped. It was a, it was a game changer. And, um, and, and I basically didn't look back from that moment. It was, you know, I talked about those three areas, the team, the marketing and the sales. It was like a fourth area opened up that I just had no idea existed before that. And, uh, we went from a million and a half in revenue to 13 and a half million of revenue in 18 months. And we went from, you know, 20 something staff to 135 staff in that same 18 month uh, period. And it was all done through acquisitions and it was all done without putting any capital into those, uh, uh, into those transactions. Um, and the Harbor Club came about simply because I kept buying these companies for, for no cash. And so people would say, Hey, can you come and work for us and do the same thing? You know, would you like to be a consultant or a non-exec or, come sit on our board. Um, and I would just look at those and think, well, why would I do that? You know, why would I take a, a salary or a fee when if I find a company, I can just buy it, you know? Uh, so it made no sense to me. And so I created the Harbor Club community really as a, a place to put those people to say, hey, look, join the Harbor Club community. I'll teach you some of my stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll go out and do deals. You can do your deals. I'll do my deals. And, uh, and let's share the best practice in the middle. Um, and I never really thought it would be much more than, like I say, a way to get rid of these people that were pestering me to work for them. <laughs> and here we are uh, over a decade later with thousands of members all over the world doing, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of, of deals every year. So, I mean, let's rewind, I guess, to that, uh, that first deal you did. What do you remember what that company was missing and what kind of value you had to bridge the gap? Yeah, actually. So look, it was a guy that had three businesses. One of them was a mobile phone business. Um, mobile phone business was fun when it was booming and everybody was, uh, and this was a 13 year old company. So he'd been through this exponential growth phase, you know, where he'd been adding lots of customers and it was all good fun and it was great. And then obviously the industry reached that saturation point that I was talking about. And so it just became harder. Um, and the year that I bought him, you know, he had a thousand active uh, customers, but he'd only made something like 12 grand of profit in the previous year. And he had two other businesses that were way more profitable. But this one, it was actually a physical shop. So he was sitting in this shop like all day long for 12 grand a year. You know, he could make more working in Starbucks. Um, so not, not that it was Starbucks back then. But, um, but, you know, it wasn't like a massively financially rewarding thing for him at that, uh, at that time. Uh, and then there was a couple of other kind of motivating factors. One was his lease was expiring on the premises and the landlord wasn't going to renew it because they wanted to develop it into uh, apartments. Um, and, uh, and he was also having some major supplier drama. The main network that he was connecting phones to kept changing the rules on him. And that was losing him customers and, and causing him, uh, you know, a lot of additional stress when, when things were difficult enough anyway. And, and basically, the solution I positioned with him was where he could recover, you know, a couple of years worth of uh, profit over the next six months and basically free all of his time up, get him out of that shop so he could go and run his other uh, businesses and, uh, and invest more time over there. So it was more uh, an opportunity to get out of what he already had. Um, now, from my perspective, a thousand connections was about what we would do in a year. So we were, you know, we, we, we would have a year's worth of, of, you know, connections in one go. Um, and that was hugely valuable uh, to us. Uh, we would also get um, sort of network incentives and bonuses for moving those over. So financially for us, it was it was quite rewarding. So we could easily pay him out as we switched those customers uh, over. Makes sense. Well, let's rewind even farther back. I know you talked about at kind of at seven years old uh, doing odd jobs. Were your parents into entrepreneurship or where did that, that idea, where did that mindset come from? Of, uh, yeah, so my, 
my mum my ran a beauty salon and my, my dad was a farmer. Um, and growing up, I didn't get pocket money. I had a choice of working in either business and getting a pound an hour, which is like a dollar thirty or something. Um, and so uh, I would be feeding animals on the farm thinking, there must be a better way to make a, <laughs> a pound an hour. Um, and that was really the genesis of the, the entrepreneurship was really how do I do something less, less dirty and smelly that gives me more than a pound an hour. So you, you had the want to make more money. Was it yeah. reading books? Was it talking to friends? I mean, where were you getting the ideas to, to make money? Yeah, so look, uh, farming is seasonal. So, uh, you know, my dad had very busy times of year and then uh, quieter times of year. And in the quieter times of year, he was he would always have these little sidelines running. And so I remember like one year we'd be making paving slabs, another year we'd be doing Christmas trees, another year we'd be making pet food. Um, it was literally like he always had these little uh, side gigs that he would use the kind of farm infrastructure for um, during the downtimes. So I think the idea of kind of the dinner table discussions around these little dreams and schemes uh were always uh were always there and i think that that kind of incentivizes you and then i think i, I had a sort of voracious appetite for learning so if i saw i mean at the time i mean now you've gone to youtube you have unlimited content at the time you go buy some cassettes you know and you listen to them so i remember listening to michael gerber's emit when i was about 15 years old uh on cassette um I, and i think i listened to it so many times the cassettes got worn out you know they wouldn't play anymore um, and, uh, uh, you know, things like that, I just found, you know, incredibly inspiring because it was people that were really dissecting and analyzing business in a, in, a, in ways that I just hadn't, uh, you know, hadn't conceived before. So I was, yeah, I, I was, um, yeah, a, a voracious learner. <clears throat> was, and I know when you started, um, uh, buying arcade games and putting in at bars, was that the, mm. cause, cause I think from before then, it was mostly like small purchases or you were basically doing the legwork to make the money, but that seems like it was a pretty big investment into kind of a growth yeah. of business. Not, yeah, not as big as you think, but yeah, it was, um, so, so basically I was buying and selling main, mainly like, um, you know, end of line stock, bankrupt stock, like bulk purchases of things. I bought like jeans and watches and jewelry and all sorts of stuff. And I had a market stall at the weekend where I was selling this stuff. And then one of the opportunities that came up was an arcade machine for like 75 pounds. It was an old, you know, crappy old machine, but it was 75 pounds. And uh, so well within the kind of budget of what I was spending on these, uh, you know, these other kind of job lots of, of stuff that I was buying. And I just went to our local pub. Now, bear in mind at this time, I'm probably like 13 years old. And I, I always looked young as a kid, um, I, even in my 20s. Like, I, I describe myself as a late shaver. I'd never be able to rock a beard like you've got. You know, I was always, like, uh, <laughs> much younger. I've got the gray hair now, which kind of compensates. But back then, I always looked much, much younger uh, than I was. So anyway, as a 13-year-old kid, I rock up at the local pub, and I go in and say, hey, how much does your fruit machine, you know, cost you to, to have in here, the, the arcade machine they have in there? And he says, oh, we rent it for £15 a week. And I'm like, how would you like to buy one for 150 pounds? You know, like, so in 10 weeks, you've recovered all of your money. And he was like, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, definitely do that. And so me, completely naive, I go off and buy this 75 pound machine. And a week later, I rock up at his door and go, here's your machine. And he never expected this 13 year old kid to actually come back <laughs> with a machine. He was just making polite small talk. And I completely missed the, the implausibility of me. Um, in that whole situation. And, 
So I was really, uh, I was devastated, you know, because I thought I had a deal. And uh, so I took this thing home and my mother was uh, really pissed off because it was sitting in our kind of front hall when you walked into the front of the house for, for a couple of weeks. And it got to the point where she was like, you have to get this thing out of here. You know, we can't, like, it's the first thing everybody sees when they come to our house. It's not, you know, it's not a good look. Um, and so I picked up the Yellow Pages, which for anyone watching this is like basically uh, 30 years ago, they used to print the internet. <laughs> so I, I, got the, uh, I got the Yellow Pages out and I go to public houses. And it was about seven pages of, of public houses, uh, you know, pubs. And uh, I, I literally sat there with a the telephone and I rang all of them and offered them this machine for 150 quid. And I sold five of them. Um, now I only had one of them, so I went and delivered the first one and then had to go and figure out how to get the remaining ones. Um, and it was at that point I found out you need a license to sell these machines. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> to get the license, you have to be 18. Um, and uh, anyway, there was a very friendly uh, supplier who was very proud of what I was doing and kind of re very impressed. He was kind of wishing his son had the same get up and go as I had, and he kind of took me under his wing and offered to let me use his license to go and sell these machines to, to the pubs. And that was the genesis. And he also talked me through the business model. So I was just buying cheap machines and selling them for double what I bought them for, which I thought was a great business. He explained the different models around creating passive income streams, so renting machines or splitting the cash that they take. So you install the machine and you go once a week, you empty the cash out and split it 50-50 with the owner. So what I would do is I would sell some and with the excess cash, I would own some that I would put into sites and collect the cash and split it with people. Um, and I did this with like uh, vending machines, pool tables, uh, jukeboxes, uh, video games, these quiz machines, uh, pinball machines, all of this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, built up, um, well, really from the age of like 13 to 18, built up sites all around uh, uh, my kind of home area. Um, and, you know, my poor dad, you know, working full time on a farm also used to sometimes have to get up really early to take me to these places or really late at night. Um, because quite often the, the bars and the clubs and things would want you to come out of hours. Um, so, you know, to empty the machines or to do anything. So it was normally like midnight or 7 a.m. or some shit like this, you know. Um, but uh, then when I was 17, my, one of my first cars was actually a van. <laughs> because uh, it was, uh, yeah, to, to drive these machines around and to, and to do stuff. So how did that business go? Um, yeah, when I had multiple sites, it was fantastic. I was, okay, I was the kid that would always buy the drinks using coins because I had pockets full of these coins that I'd taken out of these machines. So I would literally have you know, $1,000 in coins um, uh, on me at any given time. But, uh, um, but yeah, it was a very cash-generative business. And, um, and actually, the evolution to that, I thought, was to have one of these arcades, you know, a, a site where you had all the machines in one place, because I spent most of my time driving around, servicing and emptying these uh, machines. And I figured if I had them all in one place, it would be much better. So I actually managed to, when I was 18, I managed to get a bank loan, which I think is unheard of nowadays, because, um, you know, you, like, there's no way a startup would get it. But anyway, I got a bank loan of 30 grand to buy an arcade and add a, a sort of takeaway fast food joint attached to it and um uh and basically i moved a load of my machines into this one site and i was very proud of my new uh premises but it was uh, what i'd done before effectively is i was leveraging other people's premises so they would do the marketing to get the people in uh and i would just rinse them you know uh, like siphon off some of the cash of the people that were using this uh this premises um now i have my own premises so i have my own 
you know, heat and light and rent and staff and all these things I've never had to pay before. You know, literally when you're uh, using other people's premises, these were just expenses I've never experienced. Plus, machines on a site, let's say in a, a busy pub or a tourist attraction, would generate, you know, 10 or 20 times the revenue of a machine that sits in one of these uh, arcades. So um, I was getting a lot less revenue per machine and uh, had all these additional costs to take care of. Plus, I was, you know, like 18 years old, living in an apartment above the uh, above the business, um, 100 miles from where I grew up. Um, and I lasted about a year. Um, and the whole thing fell apart, fell apart around my ears, basically, and, uh, and went bust. And having been you know, the cocky, uh, you know, kid that had basically more or less everything had gone right up until that point. You know, it's kind of uh, most of the things I've tried, you know, whilst ne- nothing ever works 100% as you expect, I've been I've been cash positive my whole teenage uh, life. And suddenly I was kind of um, closing a business down, tail between my legs and having to move back in with my, uh, back in with my parents who'd already given my spare room away. Uh, my bedroom away, sorry. And so I was in the spare room. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a, 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 you know, re- relatively humbling, but um, but a really good, I, I think, um, you know, a good kick in the nuts like that does uh, teach you some humility. And it's probably better to have it at that age than uh, much later in life. Did you go directly from there into the phone business? Yeah, pretty much. It was about six, eight months later, um, you know, dabbled in a couple of other things and then basically started selling. Originally, I was selling um, these telephone numbers that follow you around, um, personalized numbers. But everybody that I sold a personalized number to wanted a mobile phone. Um, and mobile phones were just going through the miniaturization thing. So they'd gone from being like a house brick to a, to a Mars bar. And, um, and demand was just huge. And so I yeah, quickly started fulfilling that. Uh, and it turned into a, a mobile phone company that I then added fixed line and added broadband and phone systems. And we specialized in targeting uh, small to medium sized businesses and focusing on their needs because the big corporates were really looking at the kind of retail level and the big business level. And the, like, like in most industries, the, the small business center gets kind of left to rot. Uh, so uh, it was it was sort of fairly easy pickings to target that, uh, that sector. Was there ever a moment in time where you wanted to just do a nine to five job and not actually start your own business? Well, I used to joke, uh, I used to joke I worked half days, which is 12 hours a day. Um, and, uh, and no, I don't, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't want, uh, I, I don't think I could work for somebody else. I think I would find that enormously challenging. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had various sort of bits of jobs in and out and did, uh, you know, did some jobs in my, uh, career. I, I remember filling cars up in a gas station when I was uh, like 15 years old, which is completely illegal. You're supposed to be 16 to have a, a part-time job, but um, uh, yeah. Um, so the uh, yeah, but but no. In, in, in answer to your question, I I always you know I would rather eat packet noodles for a year than have a job. When you're being that you've grown so many businesses and start, I mean and sold and bought you've gone through the headaches and the the heartaches probably more so than just that 18 year old self right there when you do go through those those issues or those heartaches i mean what's your process of getting back up and kind of starting another day um sorry that i had a little problem with the audio there but um uh, so what's the process if i go through those kind of challenges uh now yeah, maybe a business doesn't a business doesn't work or a business decision doesn't work, and 
you have to kind of get back out there and start your next day. Yeah, look, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it happens pretty much all the time. I mean, like I say, business isn't a straight line. Um, there are challenges all the time. I think um, I think you just kind of get used to the fact that it's uh, it's just a Tuesday. You know, this is it's it's not particularly unusual. I think one of the biggest um, uh, changes I've had in my career is probably around the wealth uh, side of things. So I always thought that I would create wealth uh, from, you know, owning businesses. And, uh, and I think one of the big paradigm shifts I had was kind of uh, coming to a realization, that you don't make money running businesses, you make money when you sell them. Uh, and when you sell them, you can then deploy that capital into passive income that doesn't require your time input anymore. And that's really where the financial freedom part comes from. Now, of course, you know, you can always then live beyond your means and, and set yourself a higher bar financially. Um, but there's a cushion, you know, there's something you can always uh, uh, fall back on. And um, I think that that's been the biggest uh, change is creating, you know, shifting to a business model of creating capital events instead of the business model of trying to create the next Google or Apple or something like that. You know, so I think when I was a young entrepreneur, everybody wants to change the world and build this, you know, enormous company that you'll be remembered for. Um, but the reality is that um, lifestyle and comfort are, are also important. Um, there's no point, uh, you know, being a uh, you know, sacrificing everything for that dream. Um, it, it's better to have those capital events to create yourself that passive income stream and to, uh, uh, yeah, just sell off them, basically, create uh, create multiple capital events throughout your career that, uh, that build your wealth. So what's that process look like? So you're, you're, you have a business, you're looking to sell the business and then use the capital event, like you said, to get basically passive income. Is it understanding what's going to happen next or is it just one step at a time or how much of a roadmap plays out? In that? Yeah. So look on the, on the, on the capital event side, it's pretty opportunistic. So um, deals come along, uh, you know, that you can close this deal and acquire it. Um, and then, you know, add some value and sell it again for a premium. And that premium becomes your, uh, you know, your, your capital event. Now, th those things are opportunistic, but there are ways of creating more opportunities. So you can position yourself in such a way that, uh, that those opportunities come kind of uh, thick and fast and you can choose the ones that you want to have a, a go at. Um, they don't all work, but uh, enough of, if enough of them work, it has a transformative uh, impact on your, uh, on your wealth. And then the capital that comes in, um, it's about not not betting it on small businesses, basically. So not sticking it into startups, not doing VC or startup uh, financing, but boring traditional um, income generating uh, investments and, and building. You know, uh, my my bank manager says I have a portfolio like an eighty year old man um, because I have this very income driven portfolio that's not at all like somebody of my age. Somebody of my age should be. You know more risk on in terms of you know um, portfolio growth but i know that my capital comes from the exits and when i've made it i want to keep it um and i want to keep the income that comes from it so i take uh yeah a fair uh, i mean it's there are still aggressive parts of my portfolio but they're but they're income driven rather than uh um you know uh, growth bets so i don't uh, i don't look for the stock that's going to 10x i look for the stock that's going to pay me uh every month you, when you bought that first company, it sounded like the, the value that you were bringing to the company was the time aspect of it, right? And relieving stress of other people, right? When you're buying companies today, 
when you're looking at a company, what value do you uh, say, this is what I'm bringing to the company? Besides, I guess, the knowledge base that you've accumulated over the years. Is there other other nuggets? Is yeah, so look, I mean, the game the game has changed a lot since then. So I mean, m most of the deals I do now are in the in the capital markets. So um, we would take companies public, and then we would use the public company as an acquisition vehicle to acquire other companies. So you know, again, I'm a firm believer in you know in a in a small business in a startup. There's a growth phase where it's very easy to grow, and then there's normally a stage where it starts to plateau. And whilst you can still maintain some growth those exponential steps up that you had in the first three to five years are much harder to replicate just, you know, simply because you're uh, that much um, uh, bigger. So, um, you know, acquisition is a great way of getting those order of magnitude increases in, in valuation. Now, when you have a public company, public companies tend to be valued more highly than uh, private companies. Uh, <clears throat> the liquidity adds a premium to their valuation. Um, so there's a kind of arbitrage you can play between small private company valuation and large public company valuation that, that enables you to make a margin on the way through, but also keep the existing owners uh, happy and, and oftentimes uh, keep the existing owners engaged in the business on a long term basis because they now have public uh, stock. So they have liquidity as well um, and they have a better platform to grow. So a, a small business inside a public company uh, can generally pitch for bigger contracts. It can generally really attract better talent um, so it kind of solves a bunch of problems for them uh, as well so it, it becomes quite a, a mutually without wanting to use the cliche of a win-win you know it does create a, a kind of a situation that works well for all where, where do you see yourself and your your uh, I guess the Harbor Club going in the next five years where do you see the expansion yeah, look, um, I mean, at the moment, uh, the world is uh, going through some serious macroeconomic uh, transformations. I mean, we have inflation at 40 year highs, just to, to set this up, depending on when people are listening to this. Um, we have inflation at 40 year highs. We have uh, the crypto markets and the stock markets have crashed. Um, interest rates are on the rise and look like they will continue to rise for at least the rest of this year. Um, all of those things and, and that generally would, would trigger some sort of uh, recession. We've already had a quarter of negative growth. It's anticipated the next quarter may be a negative print, which would be a technical uh, recession. Um, and look, recessionary environments are, um, you know, both dangerous and an opportunity at the same time. So, um, you know, the, the, this environment suits uh, cash generative businesses that have pricing power, uh, and it really punishes businesses that either are you know not very cash generative or don't have the ability to pass those those price changes onto their customers so you know I was looking at a company the other day it gets most of its uh, uh, most of its revenue comes from government uh, subsidies which basically is normally very good in a recession but it's not great in high inflation uh, when you have high inflation the government's very slow to increase the prices but all your costs go up and you're normally contracted to deliver at this fixed cost, but your costs are going through the through the roof. So they're, they're gonna get really squeezed um, as this grows. Now in this particular situation, the guy who bought it had bought it using a loan from the bank. Uh, and that loan from the bank is personally guaranteed and the interest rates are gonna go up for at least the rest of this year and, and possibly even longer than that. So those sort of situations create, you know, a lot of pressure around um, certain business models. So, um, you know, 
But as I say, it also creates tons of opportunities. And the good thing I like about being in a business where I buy and sell companies is that you can choose which industry, which business, which, you know, that you enter into. If you're building the next Apple or you're building the next Google and that's your core focus and it just happens to be in an industry that's badly affected by a pandemic or a global financial crisis or a war or oil prices or one of the, one of the millions of macroeconomic things we seem to have going on right now, um, that creates a fairly tough set of challenges that you have to you know, navigate through. That's not to say you can't navigate through them and come out the other side stronger because you know great businesses are built in recessions. Um, but I think M&A is a great way of balancing some of that out. And I would say if you do have a business that is affected by the current macro uh, situation, my advice, I've been through enough shit in my life, my advice is don't wait for it to get really bad. Get your retaliation in first. Position yourself now for the worst case scenario. You know, if that means taking excess capacity out of the business, focusing on cash generation, shortening your credit terms to customers, you know, doing all the things that you would do if the shit really hit the fan, but doing it now, um, I would really advise doing that. And then M&A is a great tool for adding additional products and services uh, and even talent to your business that can help you ride out the current economic uh, uh, storms. So if your business is relying on government subsidies, for example, is there another business area that you could integrate with your company that isn't so uh, uh, susceptible to that, perhaps has more pricing power? Could you acquire a company like that and bring it into the fold um, to help you balance out your uh, your business through these uh, through these tough times. Well, oh, thank you, Jeremy, uh, for for being on the, the Road to Earth podcast. I, I have one last question. Well, before I get to that question, what's the best way of them getting people getting more information if they're listening right now and they're thinking about buying a business, selling a business uh, for the Harbor Club? Yeah. Yeah, so look, I mean, the first thing I would say is the juice is worth the squeeze. It's a massive area to understand. It's a whole new area of business that for most people, they, they have no idea where to even start. Um, and, I, and I recognize that. But I would say the juice is worth the squeeze. If you can master this skill, it's enormously valuable in, in all weathers, you know, whatever the economy is uh, is doing. Um, if you want to check out jeremyharbour.com. So my surname is spelled in the British way. So it's H-A-R-B-O-U-R. Um, so jeremyharbour.com. If you want to check out uh, there, there's a whole bunch of resources. There's even a 21-day free uh, email course you can you can get when you buy my book, uh, Go Do Deals, um, which was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, um, if I'm giving a plug. Um, and um, uh, But yeah, there's a bunch of other resources you can get. We, we churn out tons of free content as well, because look, the, the concepts I talk about, they're very polarizing. You know, people either really get it, really like it. Um, or it's just not for them. And so I'd much rather people kind of got a feel for it and understood if it's something they're interested in first. So, you know, you can you can look at the Harbour Club videos on YouTube or you can uh, yeah find find lots of other free content that we, we push out there um, and just see if this is something that, uh, that that might be interesting for you or, or your business. And I want to finish off this last question. Is there, what are the differences, or I guess the similarities, from purchasing a, a property in your experience from one country to the next country, do you see, I mean, uh, generic differences when you look at this? Uh, property or business? Uh, businesses, not, sorry, not businesses. Businesses, yeah, yeah. Because I know you're a real estate guy, but uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, look, so um, uh, I do most of my deals in countries that are kind of English language and English rule of law. So we do Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, the UK, the US and Canada. Um, and in all of those countries, you have very robust property rights, although, you know, uh, ownership rights. 
um, you have good corporate governance, um, you know, good good rule of law. Um, and so whilst there are nuances and differences, particularly around tax and things like that, the actual legal process like contract law and insolvency law and things like that are, are broadly similar. So it's relatively easy to jump into those different jurisdictions. I have done deals in other places before. Um, I've done deals in Indonesia and Malaysia and all sorts of weird and wonderful uh, places. Um, but it, it's always much, much harder because you know the, the the learning curve to get to where you need to get to, to do a transaction um you know is, is a little bit scarier but that that kind of english language english rule of law you know is a great kind of starting point for that kind of thing well thank you again jeremy for, for being here hopefully everyone listening got some great nuggets go on the show notes right now go find jeremy right there get buy the book i mean just like jeremy talked about i know things have ch things have changed but if there's opportunities out there, it could, it could be in real estate, it could be in business, whatever it is. If there's opportunities out there, you need to know how to take advantage of the opportunity when it does come about. So knowledge is power. I know that's a cliche, cliche right there, but knowledge is power. Understand how you can take advantage of that opportunity when that opportunity does come about. Thank you, Jeremy, again, for being here. Everyone, please subscribe, please share, and go in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.